we're going to actually read about John the Baptist. But before we read, I'll tell you, when I was... Um, when I was on the University of Texas campus, both as a student and as a campus minister, there was always this one guy, sometimes more than one guy. It may have been the same guy. It may have been a different guy, but it was always this guy who would stand on a street corner and he would preach loud. And the message almost always of his preaching was, repent, change, stop what you're doing. And there were two really fascinating things, I think, about this phenomenon. One is just how much he stuck out like a sore thumb. He was older than everybody else. He was in this just mob, this field, you know, of, of college students. And it was this guy screaming at the top of his lungs who definitely, you know, was hard to miss. But the other dynamic that was so fascinating was that he just kind of blended into the background. And nobody really paid any attention at all to him. They just walked with their heads down about their merry way and let him just go on and on. When we read about John the Baptist, he actually sounds a little like a crazy guy on a college campus. But I would encourage you, don't let it fade into the background. Pay attention this morning because this message is really at the heart of what it means to become and be a Christian the message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So with that in mind, we open your Bibles to Luke chapter 3. I'm going to read starting in verse 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Arrhenius and Tecronitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. And he said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you're authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. 
So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who'd been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all and locked John up in prison. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus had also been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Lord, we do thank you for your word, and we pray that you would open our ears and our eyes and our hearts, that we might see you more clearly and know you more fully, or that we might turn to you and change. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are going to talk about repentance today. That's really the theme. That's really the question, what is at the heart of repentance? And we'll get straight to it. Really, repentance, we'll put it up here on the screen, is turning your heart to Jesus in a way that changes your actions. Turning your heart to Jesus in a way that changes your actions. That's the definition we're going to give of repentance. And we're going to spend the rest of our time today just kind of taking that definition apart, pulling it apart and putting it back together. So let's start at the beginning. Turning somewhere. When we're going to repent, we have to start with that word turning. In fact, the Greek word that we translate repent actually literally means to turn or to change your mind. It is about actually going in one direction and redirecting to the opposite direction. Some of you know that I, um, I am notoriously bad with directions. And multiple times I've taken my family on car trips and we will pull off the highway to get gas and I'll get back on the highway only to realize... 20 minutes later, that I'm going the wrong direction. Would my kids say something like, haven't we seen that 30-foot statue of Woody Woodpecker before, you know? And of course, the tendency in my heart is to say, no, there are multiple 30-foot statues of Woody Woodpecker, of course. But I have to change direction, right? Or else we're never going to get home. We're going to end up right back where we came from. That's what the first step really in repentance is. It's actually turning. We oftentimes talk about this as Christians with the word conviction, conviction of sin. It's one of the Holy Spirit's primary jobs is to convict us of moving the wrong direction so that we might turn. And we use that word sin. If you're not familiar with that word, you can really just describe it as not only our actions, but actually our heart motivations that move us away from God and toward ourselves. Our heart motivations that move us away from God and toward ourselves. So conviction of sin is the Holy Spirit working in us to turn us from going the wrong direction so that we might actually be moving in the right direction. Now, at this point, you may be thinking, um, okay, I'm ready to tune out. Repentance, conviction of sin, isn't that what happens when you become a Christian first? Isn't that kind of the language that we use for people who aren't Christians when they get converted? Well, yes, it is. It's also the language that we use for Christians. You heard me remark earlier, Martin Luther, who started the Protestant Reformation, the very first thing on his list was repentance is daily. We get a clue from that actually in this text when John is preaching and baptizing. Now, 
Baptism we think of as a New Testament kind of event, and for the most part, it is. But there were many kinds of ceremonial washings in the Old Testament and in Israel's history. Very oftentimes, uh, people, the people of God in the Old Testament would be called to come and present themselves before the priest, and there would be some sort of ceremonial washing, a pouring of water, or a splashing of water upon people. But the baptism that John was doing, actually scholars will say, did have a particular place in the Old Testament, particularly around this time in the first century. It was a rite of entry into the people of God. So it was given to proselytes. It was given to converts when they converted to Judaism. God moved in their heart that they were moving, convicted them of sin, that they were moving away from him in the wrong direction, and they came to come and belong to the people of God, and baptism was administered as that rite of initiation. Now that makes a lot of sense. That's a lot of what we do in baptism as well. But did you catch the irony of what's going on in this scene? John is talking to Jews. He's talking to people who have a long heritage of being a part of the people of God. He's not talking to Gentiles, to pagans. He's talking to God's people. We know that because he comes out and kind of says it, listen, just in case you're about to go to this argument, don't. Don't say, we're children of Abraham, we get off the hook. Don't say we've got our heritage to lean back on. Because what John is saying clearly in his action and in his words is your heritage is not going to cut it. Your cultural religious heritage is not going to cut it. Your family religious heritage is not going to cut it. The fact that you have grown up in this and you've been here all your life is not going to cut it because your heart's have moved away from God. What he is saying to those people is that your hearts have become so callous that your personal piety has come so far away from your religious activity that you might as well just be Gentiles. That you are acting and showing your hearts to be people who are pagan idolaters rather than God's people. And so we're going to baptize you for the repentance of sin just like you were Gentiles coming in for the first time. That stings if you're a Jew. But it's good for us to ask now, does the crazy man in the wilderness have something to say to the American church too? You know, about 75% of Americans would say that they were Christians. About 30% actually practice their faith. About 30% go to church regularly, and that number is plummeting uh, daily. About 30% read their Bibles somewhere between 10 and 25% tithe regularly. Uh, Divorce rates in and outside the church are roughly the same. Broad swath of the the church historically has loosened its grip entirely on biblical fidelity. In many of our largest churches in America, the good news of the gospel has become synonymous with I'm going to be healthy and wealthy. How about our own personal hearts even? Do we need to hear this crazy man wearing a camel hair coat, which wasn't from Brooks Brothers, and eating locusts and honey? Do we need to hear what he has to say to us? Have our hearts become callous and cold? That's the first step in repentance is understanding that. 
so that we might turn. But turning in itself is not enough. It's actually really important who we turn to. Because we have to not only turn, but turn to Jesus. What John is giving here, baptism, and when we baptize as well, it's a sign. It's supposed to point to something. In fact, good signs always do that. They point you in the right direction. And the church has always supposed to point people in the, to Jesus, in the way of Jesus. And good signs work, but sometimes signs can be a little confusing. Let me show you a couple of signs, uh, confusing signs like this one. Bottomless pit, 65 feet deep. That confuses me a little. Or this next one, um, entrance only, do not enter. Not really sure where I'm supposed to go. Sometimes uh, just a little depressing, right? May want to expect some delays on this one. Uh, also depressing. Uh, yeah, there's a way out. But I'm not sure I want to take it. <laughs> um, yeah, just in case you were hoping for something better, promised land is closed. Uh, and, then, and then this one, this is only mildly um, depressing. If you're a wheelchair user, this is actually really nice. Three cheers for... Uh, not subscribing to the ADA compliance here. Torture chamber, unsuitable for wheelchair users. Uh, but my favorite signs are, are church signs. Uh, signs on church marquees. Uh, how about these? Honk if you love Jesus. Text while driving if you want to meet him. Uh, or this one, this too shall pass. It might pass like a kidney stone, but it's going to pass. Uh, the fall flavored, you know, now serving pumpkin spice communion. That's nice. Uh, and then this is my favorite, blah, blah, you know, blah, just come to church. The church is supposed to point people in a particular direction. It's supposed to point people to Jesus. The church itself and baptism in particular are supposed to be a sign that point us to Christ because it is there and only there that we actually find the power for change. Do you know in 2014, uh, the government, the FDA, started putting uh, warning labels on food, or not warning labels, but calorie labels. So uh, not only kind of, you know, on the grocery store stuff, but when you go to a fast food restaurant or any restaurant, it's actually going to say there how many calories are in that Big Mac and in those fries. And everybody has kind of overwhelmingly said, that's a great idea. People need to know. Let's give them knowledge, and that knowledge will empower them to change their lives. Something like between 75 and 90% of the people surveyed thought putting calorie counts on the menus will definitely change people's lives. Guess what? It doesn't. In fact, all the studies that have recently been done have shown that all of that information doesn't change anything about people's activity. David Brooks, who's a columnist for the New York Times, writes this. He said, both reason and will are obviously important in making moral decisions and in exercising self-control. But neither of these character models has proven very effective. You can tell people not to eat the french fry. You can give pamphlets about the risk of obesity. You can deliver sermons urging them to exercise self-control and not eat the fry. And in the non-hungry state, most people will vow not to eat it. But when their hungry self arises, their well-intentioned self fades, and they eat the french fry. 
Most diets fail because the conscious forces of reason and will are simply not powerful enough to consistently subdue unconscious urges. Friends, that is true with spiritual change as well. It is true with every area of our life change. If we are going to turn, we cannot turn to willpower. We cannot turn to ourselves to pick us up and just do better. We have to turn to Jesus. We have to turn to Jesus whose atoning death forgives us of our sin. We have to turn to Jesus whose resurrection gives us new life. We have to turn to Jesus whose spirit empowers us to actually change. We can't simply turn. We actually have to turn to Christ. And then here's the way that that sentence finishes out. We turn to Jesus in a way that changes our actions. Repentance is turning to Christ, turning our hearts to Christ in a way that changes our actions. In fact, this may have been the most surprising part of what I read earlier about what John says. He's there preaching to a big crowd. There's lots of folks there. Again, we've already said uh, most of them, if not all of them, are Jews, but it's a mixed group. And what he tells them when they say, what do we do? It's a good sermon, right? When people say, ah, what do I do? What does it mean now that I've been baptized? How do I live my life? What John says to them is that when your heart is turned to Christ in repentance, your life will be turned to others in compassion, in justice, in mercy, and in love. This first group of people just named the crowd, they say, what do we do? And what does John say? He says, well, if you've got two tunics and there's somebody else who doesn't have even one, share one of yours. If you have a pantry full of food and there's someone over here who doesn't have any, take some of your food and give it to them. Share out of what you have so that other needs might be met. Now, interestingly, we see the same dynamic actually at work in Acts chapter 2. You heard uh, Robert read this, this, uh, these verses earlier, Peter proclaiming this beautiful uh, message of who Jesus is and what he's done. And the response was the same, what do we do? And Peter, of course, his call was just the same here as John's, repent, be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. What he didn't read was the people's response. I'm going to read you just a little bit of how actually God's people responded to him. This is directly after Peter's sermon at Pentecost. Acts chapter 2, verse 42, and they, that's these new Christians, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through them, and listen to this, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and their belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. See, when the gospel takes root, it actually creates radical generosity. I have been questioning how personally and communally we as a church can do a better job of meeting the needs of the poor, of meeting the needs of of those who are materially disadvantaged. I'm going to tell you, I don't have a great answer yet, but I would love for you to help me ask that question. 
I would love to talk about it. Many of you are really gifted at that. You do it innately really well. Let's talk. Let's find out how we as a church can respond to God's grace with generosity. There's a second group that's there, and he says that they are tax collectors. And they too ask, okay, what about us? We're tax collectors. How do we respond to the gospel? How do we repent? And what John says is, well, don't take more than you should take from people. Let me explain really quickly. Tax collectors were employed by the Roman government. Israel at this time was actually subject to Rome. Rome would collect taxes because those nice roads need money to get built, and that nice army needs money to protect you. But they would collect their taxes by typically appointing, appointing regional kind of governors who would then appoint local collectors who then oftentimes would even appoint other local collectors to go and get the money from the regular Joes. But here's the problem. Every person in that chain needed to take his commission. And the system was set up not so that the number taken was set, but that the number given was set so that every step along that chain could raise the prices as much as they want to extract as much as they wanted to from the regular people so that they could take their share before they gave it to Rome. It was a system that just had embedded in it tons of corruption. Now what's fascinating, I think, is what John says, is he doesn't say, listen, this whole Roman occupation thing is bull. So if you're a tax collector, you need to leave your job because the Romans are terrible. He doesn't say that. Neither does he say, you should petition for a change in the system. You know what he says? He says, do your job justly. Do your job with fairness. Do your job the way that you have been called to do it as an honest steward. Tyson told me a story just this morning about a girl who was taking guitar lessons, and she didn't know it. Her grandfather's guitar, who had been handed down to her, was worth $45,000. She had no clue. But the guy giving the lessons did, and he actually called the store to come in and purchase it for her. Now, you know what he could have done since she had no clue? He could have said, your guitar is really pretty. We'll buy it, to you. We'll buy it from you for $300. Or $3,000. And she wouldn't have had any clue. But he didn't. He said, I know what it's worth. And I'm not going to gouge you because you don't know what it's worth. That's a big piece of what it means actually to respond in repentance. Quickly, here's a third group too. They're called soldiers. They're probably not Roman soldiers. They're probably Jewish soldiers. In fact, they're probably some sort of police force or law enforcement. And what John says is the way that you respond and you repent is that you don't take advantage of the power and the authority that you've been given. Now, that's true for, uh, for law enforcement across the board, but it's true for anybody who is in power. We are called to use power to empower people, not to actually take it. Oftentimes, sinfully, what we think is if I'm in power, what I need to do is gain more so that you can have less, so that I can feel some sort of you know, uh, ability to rise above you. But what God has actually said is that those who have power are called to give their power away so that they might empower others. And that's what John says too. If you are in authority, don't abuse your authority. Use it to create flourishing in others. A heart 
that has responded to Jesus is a life that is lived out in compassion, in justice, in mercy, and in love. So there's our sentence. To repent, what does it mean? It means to turn to Jesus so that it changes our actions. Let me really quickly finish with the very end of this passage because we haven't gotten to it yet. It's when Jesus himself is baptized. Now this is sometimes a big question. It's been a big question mark for me at times in the past. Why in the world is Jesus baptized? This is a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus doesn't need to repent of anything. Jesus doesn't have any sins that need to be forgiven. Why is Jesus getting baptized? Well, the answer, simply put, is this, is that Jesus is beginning his public ministry the way that he will end his ministry, which is identifying with sinners. He is actually taking up our brokenness and identifying with us by being baptized as a sinner. I heard a pastor tell this story recently, and it stuck with me. Imagine a table, and there's a woman sitting behind the table, and there's a big sign above the table that says, you know, repent here. And she has a stack of name tags and a big black Sharpie marker, and there's a line lined up for this table. And one by one, people are coming and stepping up to the table, and she says, okay, what's your name? Uh, My name is Bill. And what are you repenting of? Well, I've actually been skimming off the top a little bit at work and uh, kind of taking out of the petty cash and fudging some of the stuff on my expense reports. And the lady behind the table takes out the big Sharpie marker. She goes, okay, Bill, Bill, extortion, embezzler. She pulls off the name tag, puts it on Bill's chest and says, okay, come stand over here. Next. Uh, My name is Katie. Katie, she writes down, what are you repenting of today, Katie? And Katie says, well, I said a couple of really, really hurtful things about a friend of mine behind her back. She says, okay, slander, pulls it off, slaps it on her chest. You can wait over here. Next. Next comes up. My name is John. I said some really hateful things in my heart about my wife. I was angry, but I was reading the Bible, and it actually... Jesus seems to equate, you know, hateful anger with murder. Aha, John, murderer. And she pulls off the name tag and slaps it on his chest. Come stand over here. Next. My name is Jesus. Okay, Jesus, write that down. What are you repenting of today, Jesus? Actually, nothing. I'm actually the sinless son of God, so nothing to repent of. Well, Jesus did... There's a sign. Did you not see it? This is actually the repentance table. This is where you come to. What, what are you doing here? And Jesus says, I'm actually here for them. And he walks over to the group of people there, and he begins taking off their name tags, and he says, embezzler. Puts it on himself. Slanderer. Puts it on himself. Murderer. Puts it on himself. See, that's why Jesus is baptized. He's identifying with us. He is taking our sin upon himself. He will do the same at the end of his ministry as he hangs on a cross. And he says, it's for the sins of the world that I have come to die. Their sin on me. Friends, that is why it is a joy and a privilege to repent. 
Because, it's because we get to turn to the one who is not only able to take it, who not only has the power to change, but who willingly has come to identify with us so that he might take up our infirmities, so that he might bear our sins, so that he might identify with us. That is the one we turn to. Let me invite you to turn to him today. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for the beautiful privilege of repentance. We're thankful, Lord, for uh, confession. We're thankful, Lord, for even the wounds that your word oftentimes gives us. We're thankful, Lord, for the weight because we know, Lord, that it's you who have come to carry it. So, Father, will you turn our hearts to your Son, that we might change, that we might follow you, that we might know your forgiveness and your deep love for us, and that that might empower us to pour out love and mercy and compassion and justice on others. We ask that you, Holy Spirit, would do this work in our hearts today. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.